So I am obviously not Pastor Ajay, um, but a few weeks ago, Ajay had spoken to me and kind of let me know that, you know, uh, I'm sure most of you have heard that um, Ajay's wife, Shainu, just had their second child, um, Micah, and so we're celebrating with them on that. So a few weeks ago, we talked about this arrangement that we would have that when Shainu goes, that I would go as well, and I would go to the pulpit and she would go to the hospital. So, um, so um, a few weeks ago, we had that arrangement, and so I've just been kind of on standby since. You know, whenever Shainu goes, I go. And so even like last week, I came here with sermon in hand, and, and one of the biggest fears that I had uh, was that, that Shainu would go into labor in the middle of one of Ajay's messages. I'm not sure. We didn't really talk through the details of what that would look like. Like, do I just come up here and kind of finish off from where he left off, or do I just switch gears and start a brand new thing? I don't know. Um, but I'm glad that uh, Shainu was a trooper, and uh, she had her baby in the middle of a week. I'm sure she was thinking about us and making it a convenient for us as well. So um, we rejoiced with her family uh, in the coming of Micah Timothy, and uh, we are just grateful for what God is doing um, through their lives and in their lives as well. So I'm not sure how many of you a few weeks ago heard this, this major announcement from Verizon announcing that they're going to be adding the iPhone to their lineup of cell phones starting in February, right? Now, I don't know how many of you are Verizon users. I'm actually not a Verizon user myself, but I was extremely, extremely excited to hear that. That's because I'm a huge iPhone fan, okay? I don't know about how many of you may, may be also, but I'm a huge iPhone fan because I think the iPhone is one of the greatest devices that was ever created. Okay. To be honest, it's not much of a phone. It doesn't do that great as a phone because it's drop calls all the time. But besides that, it is a great, great device. In all honesty, the iPhone is so much more than a phone. I mean, even calling it an iPhone is a huge understatement. I mean, this phone is a web browser. You can do texting. You can play games. Uh, it's a musical instrument sometimes. And there's an app for everything you can possibly think of on this phone. I mean, Apple has created one of the most amazing devices in the world and made it small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. Now, imagine that Verizon, understanding how great this device is, that they decided, you know what? It's not fair that only a select few people in America have this. They want to go worldwide with this phone. They want to start having this phone distributed all over the world. And so what they decided that they're going to do is that they're going to start re sending representatives all across the world set up networks, and explain to people about this iPhone, what it is, and why it is that they need it. Now imagine with me also that you work for Verizon, so that one day when you come in to work, they tell you, you know what, um, we're actually going to be relocating you. And what we're going to be doing is that we're going to be sending you to a remote area somewhere in the middle of nowhere, out in Africa, to a village, and what your responsibility is that, is that you want to go there and explain to the villagers in that place what the iPhone is and why they desperately need one. Question is, where do you begin? I mean, how do you explain a cell phone to someone who doesn't even have electricity? Or how do you explain email to a group of people that may not even have a written form of language? Or how do you explain an MP3 player to someone who's never even seen a radio? I mean, that would be pretty difficult, right? I mean, nearly impossible. But if you think about it, that's exactly what the Bible is trying to do for us when it tries to speak to us, right? The Bible has the difficult task of trying to explain God to human beings. 
And even though you and I and, and people all over this world are brilliant because we do create things like the iPhone or we travel to the moon or that we cure diseases, if we were being honest with ourselves, we would have to confess the fact that our finite minds are just incapable of understanding an infinite God. I mean, how do we begin to explain this idea that God is all-powerful, right? That there's nothing in this world that God isn't able to do. Or, or how do we wrap our minds around this idea that God spoke the world into existence, right? That at one point, there was nothing that existed in this world, and that he simply said the word, and then there was. How do we begin to explain those things or understand those things? So the question is, how does the Bible do it? Well, the Bible uses language. Well, let me get a little bit more specific here. The Bible uses a, a particular form of language called a metaphor. Now, if you think back to your elementary school days, you'll remember that a metaphor is a figure of speech where imagery is used to compare two unrelated items, right? So for example, if I said something like, it's raining cats and dogs, everyone in this room knows that there aren't actually cats and dogs falling from the sky, but that when I say that, it means it's raining hard, it's pouring, right? Or if I say something like, I'm sitting on pins and needles, everyone knows that I'm not actually sitting on a bunch of pins and needles, but that means that I'm anxious or nervous about something, right? Well, the Bible also uses metaphors to try to explain to us, to try to describe to us who God is. And though no one metaphor completely describes God, what we know is that every meta metaphor tells us some aspect, some component of his being and his character. So for example, the Bible says that God is a shepherd. Now we know that in all honesty, God isn't a shepherd because he doesn't have a flock that he herds. But we know that when we call God a shepherd, we know that it talks about the way that he directs us and guides us and protects us and, and watches over us. Or the Bible says that Jesus is the door. Now, we obviously know that Jesus isn't a door, but we know that when we call Jesus the door, it's talking to us something about the way that he is the entryway through which we have relationship with God. So today, we're actually going to look at a different metaphor. We're going to look at a metaphor that we find in the, gospel, um, the epistle of John. In the first epistle of John, he talks about this idea that God is light. So immediately, we need to be asking ourselves a few questions. Why is God being described as light? What does this metaphor teach us about God? And then thirdly, how does this metaphor affect our relationship with God? So this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2, which is what Ajay read for us this morning. But before that, let's, let's pray together. Father, we are, we are desperate for you to speak to us this morning. We are desperate for you to tell us more about yourself, that in us knowing more about you, that we would become aware of more about us, and that in us understanding who we are, that we would respond to you in faith. God, we have tried many things in this world, tried to, to satisfy ourselves in various ways, and we are painfully aware of the fact that they fail us time and time again. And so we're turning to you, asking you, God, that you would provide us with desire for you, with satisfaction in you, 
that we would really understand you for who you really are and find all of our completion in you. As we open up your word, Father, we're praying that you would speak to each one of us where we need to be spoken to in the places that we are. Meet us, Father, as you have met many before us. We're asking that you would meet us where we need to be met. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So before we read this passage, I'm just going to lay down some foundation, give you some context as to what we're reading and where John is coming from. So John, the John that we're talking about, is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, right? And so this is written about 60 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're talking, we're hearing from a John that is well in age, right? We're talking about a John who has has seen Jesus with his eyes and, and has touched Jesus with his hands and has have fellowship with Jesus and, and, to be honest, has suffered much because of Jesus. And so John is writing to a group of churches, a group of brand new churches just like ours in Ephesus. And what he's writing about is that there's some false teaching going on in that area about now. And, and what, what he wants to address is that false teaching about who Jesus is and what, and what he has done and also the false teaching about what it means to be a Christian. So he wants to use this letter to address the Christians in that area. Listen, you, you guys are hearing some false teaching about these things, and I want to correct that. So pas- the passage we're about to read right now together is also addressing that very same thing. It's addressing these false teachings that we have, or the, the church in Ephesus has, about who Jesus is and what he has done, and also what it looks like to be a Christian. So I'm going to reread this passage, if you would open up with me. uh, It's on page 1021 of the Bibles in the pew or in the chair. And we'll read together in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 2. This is what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to read verse 5 once again. It says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. So the first thing that we want to concentrate on this morning is this idea that God is light. What is John trying to tell us through this metaphor? Well, in order for us to understand what John means when he says God is light, we need to consider two things. First, what is the purpose of light? And then secondly, what does this purpose of light tell us about God's character? So let's first consider the purpose of light. So I'm going to use an illustration to try to help explain this thing a little better. The, the, the primary purpose that we want to look at this morning is to expose. Light has a primary purpose of exposing things to us. So what do I mean by expose? Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen one of those episodes of 2020 or Dateline 
where they have this special report, right? And they make a big deal out of it. And what they're going to do is they go into a hotel room, something like a Marriott or a Sheraton or something like that. And they walk into this room. And first you see this beautiful, beautiful room, right? And in that room is a, a well-made bed with the perfect blankets. And you look at it and you feel like you just want to dive right in, right? And so all of a sudden, they're kind of showing you this room. And then the lights turn off, right? It's completely dark in the room. And then you see this blue light being waved all over the sheets, right? I'm sure if you know what I'm talking about, you, you have this image in your mind. And what you realize is that those pearly white sheets that you just saw a moment ago are actually filled with all sorts of bugs and dirt and filth of all kinds. And you look at these sheets and you say to yourself, that's crazy, right? I mean, those can't be the same sheets that I just saw a moment ago. I mean, they looked pearly white a moment ago, and now they're crawling with all sorts of filth. And you, you think, what, what is going on here? What, what did the black light do? The black light exposed the true condition of those sheets, right? It helped us to see far more than what was able to see on the surface. Well, that's what I mean when I say that God exposes things. You see, if God is light and in him there is no darkness, we have to ask ourselves, what is God exposing? And when we read through 1 John, it's clear that the word light is talking about the holy and sinless and pure character of God. We say it all the time in our songs and in our readings, but we have to consider this fact that God is absolutely unique. You see, there's no one like him. And so when we encounter this unique, holy God, we begin to see for ourselves how unlike him we really are. So much so that the Hebrew word for sin actually means missing the mark. So when we sin, it's not just that we're doing something bad that we shouldn't be doing. When we sin, what we're trying to say is that we have failed in hitting the mark of God's character. So if God's character is a small red circle in the middle of a dartboard, our character comes nowhere near hitting that bullseye. We're not even hitting the dartboard. And in fact, what John is saying is that not only is God is light, not only is this true that God is light, but he's also saying that in him there is no darkness. You see, God is different than us in that he isn't good and evil, or he isn't truthful and a liar, or he isn't faithful and faithless. That's what actually you and I are like. And so we have the capacity to be both good and evil at any moment in, in, at any given time in our life. So we have good deeds and bad deeds. We can be both loving and loving at the same time. But God is not like us. God is good, and he is always good. There's never a time where he will think or speak or act outside of this holy or sinless or pure character of his. Holy is what he is, and he will never, ever be something else. And so when we human beings encounter this holy God, we become aware of our true self, and we also become aware of our need to be changed. And when we become aware of our need to be changed, what you and I need is not just a better strategy or a 12-step plan or even positive thinking. What you and I need is a greater understanding of who God is and what he has done. And this is where God being light comes into play. What John is trying to say here for us is that 
when we encounter God and his character, we will undoubtedly become aware of our sin. And if the truth is, when we become aware of our sin, it can elicit a bunch of different responses, both good and bad. So what John's going to do in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 2, is talk about three wrong responses to being exposed of sin and why they need to be rejected. He's going to go through and say, these are three examples of how we respond to sin that are wrong and, and help us to understand why it is that they're wrong. So let's open up again to chapter 1, verse 6. And this is what John says. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So what is John saying here? John is saying that the first wrong response to being exposed of sin is to believe that you can be a Christian, but that you can continue living in habitual sin. The first wrong response is to believe that you can be a Christian, but to continue living in habitual sin. So what's John talking about here? I'm think, I can think of two examples of, of who John may be explaining. The first example is when you identify yourself as a Christian, but in all honesty, there is no difference from you and a non-Christian. And so even though you may have grown up going to church every Sunday, or you own a study Bible, or you lived in a household where there was family prayer, where you guys prayed together, in reality, your day-to-day -day life looks identical to that of an unbeliever. You have no real relationship with God. You really don't have any desire for him. You he has no bearing on the things that you believe or in the things that you pursue or the relationships that you hold. So you live life in the way that you want, and you do what your heart desires, and there's no desire on your behalf to be obedient to God. But what John is saying here is that if you have fellowship with God, or if you say you have fellowship with God, but in reality you are walking in darkness, you're lying. And the truth is that there's no way that you and I can encounter God and walk away unchanged. You see, if any of us were walking down the street on Welsh Road and there happens to be an 18-wheeler truck or a semi driving towards us and we're walking in that direction and that semi hits us and we collide head on, you better believe that there's no way that any one of us can stand right back up again, brush ourselves off, and continue living life the way that we did once. But for some reason, some of us are, are convinced that you and I can collide with this holy and powerful God and live unchanged, live with no change or no transformation in your life. And John is saying, if we live that way, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. He's saying that if you're convinced that you can be a Christian by just bearing the name but not having any transformation in your life, that you're walking in darkness and that you're lying to yourself. The second type of person that John may be explaining to or describing to us in verse 6 is someone that Jesus describes to us in Matthew chapter 23. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it out to you. In Matthew 23, he says in verse 25 and 26 this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, Sharon and I have been married for a little bit over four years now. And if I could say so myself, I think I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this marriage thing, right? And so I've learned a bunch of lessons along the way that are just really key for us to keep in order to make sure that our, our marriage is healthy, right? And so one of those things that I've learned al along the way is something that I want to share with the men at Seven Mile Road because I care about you guys. I love you guys. And so I want to make sure that you don't repeat some of the mistakes that I have. So fellas, if your wife tells you at any point in time and asks you, hey, would you mind washing the dishes in the sink? Never, okay, and I, I repeat, never just wash the outside of the pot or the outside of a pan or the outside of a mug or a glass and then look at her and say, it's clean. You know why? Because for some reason, that's just never good enough. There's never going to be a time where she'll look at you and say, well, that looks good enough, or at least they're clean on the outside. Instead, she will probably say to you, that was a total waste of my time, you loser. <laughs> or, why did you even bother washing the dishes in the first place? And her, her response would be right. Why? Because, you, you see, washing dishes on the outside isn't what makes it clean. Washing on the out inside is what matters the most. And this is exactly the type of person that verse 6 is talking about. Some of you are more consumed with what's on the outside, what's being displayed on the outside, than what's really going on in your heart. And some of us have grown up in a context where Christianity has been reduced to just behavior modification. So you're taught that as long as you can be a Christian, as long as you don't listen to Power 99 and, and you listen to Christian music and praise music in the morning instead, or, or, or you're a Christian as long as you don't drink alcohol or, or watch rated R movies or you don't wear jewelry. And all of a sudden, your relationship with God boils down to a list of do's and don'ts. But in reality, you have no real relationship with God. There's no genuine transformation of your heart. You're just playing a game of religion. And your worst fear is that people would see you for who you really are. That your sins and struggles would be exposed and that your image would be ruined. Well, both of these people, as John says, is lying and not practicing truth. One claims to be a Christian, but continues to live like the rest of the world. And the other claims to be a Christian and hopes that their good deeds will impress God and impress the people around them. John is saying, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we're actually lying and not practicing the truth. Does this describe any of you? Is there a disconnect between who you say you are and who you really are? If yes, what John is saying is that your response to sin is faulty and that something needs to change. That's the first example. Let's move over to the second example. And the second example is found in verse 8 of chapter 1. Verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember what we said before, right? We said that because God is light, meaning that he's holy and pure and sinless, when he shines his light on us, we become aware of the sins in our lives. So in all reality, the closer that we get in fellowship with God, 
the more you become aware of the sins in your life. And there's probably nobody here that's walking around saying something like, you know what, I don't sin, or I don't remember the last time I did sin. Most of us are fully aware of the fact that we are sinners. But in some sense, in a very real sense, you could be aware of the fact that you're a sinner, but still claim to be without sin. And here's how. You see, if at any moment in your life, if someone were to ask you, you know, what sin is God currently convicting you of? And for the life of you, you can't think of a particular sin that God is currently convicting you of or how he's transforming you. Then in a very real sense, what you are saying is, I am without sin. Remember, the closer we get to God, the more we realize just how holy he is. And our response to that realization should lead us to be honest with God, not to be indifferent or not to pretend like we're not as bad as we have been exposed to be, but to be honest with God. And not only are you called to be honest with God, when you're exposed to sin, it should also lead you to be honest with the people around you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that that we need to be open and honest and transparent with everyone that comes across our life. But a question that I have for you is, are you being open and honest and transparent with anyone in your life? I mean, is there, is there someone in your life who knows just who you are and the things that you struggle with? You see, as we grow in our faith, it should lead us to naturally develop, to develop, develop relationships where we can be honest with people where we can share our sins and our struggles with one another, and that those people can lead us to confession and to, and to repentance and to transformation. I would say if you don't have one of those relationships in your life, it may be because you believe in your heart that I am without sin. Does this describe any of you? Are you actively being convicted of sin in your life? Are you actively being transformed? If not, John is saying that your response to sin is faulty and that something needs to change. And so finally, we come to the third false example of what it looks like to respond to sin, a faulty example. And this is found in verse 10. So John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What is John talking about here? John is saying that if God is exposing you of the sins in your life, but you're not responding to God in those convictions and repentance, then what you're doing is you're calling him a liar, and you're actually not in fellowship with him. So for example, if you feel like God is tugging at your heart, even maybe this morning, telling you that you need to forgive someone, and all you can do is think of a million reasons as to why it is that you shouldn't forgive that person or why that person isn't deserving of being forgiven, then in a very real sense, you are saying that you have not sinned. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning knowing full well that you're struggling with the sexual sin that God is convicting you of. And every day you justify to yourself why it is okay for you to continue doing what you have been doing. And there's no real repentance in your life. There's no real transformation. You just continue doing what you want to do. And you hope that that will be okay. What God is saying is that you are saying you have not sinned. 
Why does John say that we're calling God a liar? Because through our actions, or even maybe through our lack of action, we are saying that we don't believe God in what he has said. We're telling him that we know better than he does. You see, confession is agreeing with God about what he has said and saying that what he has said is indeed true. So, so when you and I confess of our sins, we're agreeing with God about what he has said about our sin. So, for example, when God convicts you that you're prideful and that you care deeply about the way that others see you, confession doesn't mean that you just say, oh, that's not me, I'm not really that bad. Instead, you, you agree with God and say, absolutely, I am that person that you're declaring me to be. I am deeply concerned with what people believe and think of me. And that should cause you and lead you to repentance. You see, you and I need to understand that confession is more than just getting something off of your chest. And sometimes we approach confession in that way, right? So sometimes we do something wrong and we just need to tell someone just so that we can get that weight lifted off of our shoulders. But that's it. You know, there's no repentance, there's no transformation. It's just a venting session for us. But true confession, the Bible teaches us, will always lead to repentance. True confession is more than just feeling guilty about your sin or feeling like you need to vent. It is agreeing with God about what he has said and turning from your sin and turning towards God. So when God says that I need to forgive someone, or when God says that I need to love my wife better, or when God says that I need to share the gospel with these people, and I don't, what I'm actually saying is that God is a liar, that I know what's best for my life, and that he doesn't. Question is, does this describe any of you? Are there clear convictions that God is placing on your heart that you are repeatedly ignoring, denying? Are you calling him a liar through your actions or through your lack of action? If yes, John is saying that your response to sin is faulty and that something needs to change. If we're being honest with ourselves, we may be sitting here this morning feeling like John is calling me out here, right? Maybe one or, or two or maybe even all three of these examples really are describing you. You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you know that there are sins in your life and you're not exactly sure what to do about it. Or maybe there is a disconnect between who you say you are and who you really are. You know, maybe you're a Christian by name, but your life hasn't been transformed. Or maybe you're more concerned with impressing God with your good deeds and hoping that people accept you for the good things that you do in your life, but there's no honesty about the sins that are there. Or maybe you are a Christian, but there is no active wrestling with God concerning your sin. If you were being honest, you can't remember the last time you repented of anything. Or maybe there are sins in your life that God is convicting you of, but you're turning back to him in denial, or you're convincing yourself that you're really not as bad as God is calling you to be. So if any of these things are describing you, we have a question that we need to be asking ourselves. What do I do? What do I do to, being, to be being exposed of these things that John is calling me out on? How do I respond to those things? I realize that I have been responding with these faulty methods, but in all honesty, I don't know what else to do. 
Well, I think that John exposes our faulty methods of responding to sin, not to leave us with hopelessness, but that we would have no other hope but to trust in the person and work of Jesus. I want you here to, to hear that again. We're not being exposed to these faulty responses to sin so that we would be left with hopelessness, but rather John is exposing these things so that we would have no other hope but to depend fully on the person and work of Jesus. You see, when I try to respond to the sins in my life with more of me and more of my work, what John is reminding me is it's not more of me that I need. It's more of Jesus and his work. So what does John do? He gives us three truths that we need to remember and cling on to when we're exposed to those sins. So let's take a look of those, at those three truths. We just took a look at those three faulty responses, and John is going to give us three truths that we need to remember and cling on to in response to our sin. So the first one is found in verse 7. This is what it says. John is saying, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what is John saying here? He's saying that when we are exposed of sin in our lives, that it shouldn't lead us to run from God. It should rather lead us to walk in the light and be cleansed. That when we are exposed to sin, it shouldn't cause us to run from God. Rather, it should cause us to walk in the light and be cleansed. You know, in all honesty, this is a bit counterintuitive to us, right? Because when we wrong someone, when we do something against someone, our response is to usually do whatever we can to avoid that person at any cost. You know, when I know that when I struggle with sin, my usual tendency, tendency is to resist God because I know that I'm full of fear or, or shame or guilt or anger. But what John is saying is that when we become aware of our sin, we're not called to run from God, but rather to walk in the light. So our question must be, what, what does it even mean to walk in the light? I mean, it sounds like a good phrase, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. I feel like walking in the light simply means having fellowship with God. And I think that God has given a number of ways to us in which we can have fellowship with him. And I want to talk about four primary ways in which we can have fellowship with God. The first primary way that God allows us to have fellowship with him is that he has provided us with his spirit. You see, when you believed in Jesus, when you trusted in the gospel, he not only saved you, but he also made his dwelling within you. You see, God isn't a distant being who created the world and saw the fall and brought us Jesus and saved us and then left us to ourselves, hoping that we'll figure things out. Rather, he has given us his spirit, the same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, actually lives within us now. And that Holy Spirit is continually working within us to reveal to us who God is and continually working to convict us of sin and remind us of truth and teaching us how to pray and comforting us of our trials in life. God has given us his spirit through which we are able to have fellowship with him. But not only has he given us his spirit, he has also given us his word. When we read God's word or when we hear God's word being preached to us, we need to remember that the Bible isn't just a well-written book or a textbook that we're called to study, 
that it really is the living and active word of God. And because it is living and active, that it is able to teach us about God. It is able to rebuke us and correct us and train us and equip us for all good work. But not only does God give us his spirit and his word, he also gives us prayer. I mean, if we were being honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that it is unbelievable, just absolutely amazing to consider that the creator of the world and the savior of our souls actually wants to hear from us. That he isn't a distant being, he wants to have relationship with us, and that includes us talking to him. For those of you who are married or for those of you who are in relationships, try to imagine a relationship where there was only one form of communication, one way of communication, where you didn't actually talk to someone. All you did was to receive word from them. That relationship would quickly fall apart. And so God has given us a means through which we can communicate with him. And so prayer is more than just a checklist item that Christians should be doing and feel bad when we don't do. Prayer reflects our love for God, our dependency on him, and our trust in him for all things. God is inviting us to communicate with him because he desires relationship with us. But not only has he given us his spirit and his word and prayer, he has also given us community. Every single one of us in here needs to remember and believe that the Christian life was not designed to be lived in solitude. Even our soul care communities here at Seven Mile Road were created with that truth in mind. He has given us each other in order so that we would be able to walk alongside each other, encourage each other in our need to confess our sin and to turn to him in repentance. Our lives were meant to be lived in community. And when we live life in community, we are able to have deeper fellowship with God. God has given us numerous ways for us to be in fellowship with him. And what John is saying here is that when we are in sin, even though our, our usual tendency is to run from God in those moments, he's saying, instead of running from God, we need to walk in the light. John's saying, that is deeper fellowship with Jesus that we need, not less. So that he says that when we respond to sin with deeper fellowship with Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. When God's children are exposed to the sins in their lives, they don't turn to Jesus and receive punishment. They turn to Jesus and are cleansed. The blood that was shed on the cross for you and I is able to clean, clean us of our sins, no matter what our sin may be, or no matter how long we've been doing it. John is saying to us, Seven Mile Road, don't run from God when you're exposed to sin. Instead, walk in the light, and that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from the inside out. The second truth that we need to remember, the second thing that we need to cling on to, is found in verse 9. So I'm going to read that really quickly. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is telling us, listen, exposure to our sin should not cause us to feel condemned, but instead to remember God's faithfulness and his justice. You see, not only does 
sin, or not only does light expose the sin in our lives, when we talk about God being light, it reminds us of, us, of his holy character. When we sin, God is the one that is being offended. And so God, being God, has the right to do whatever he wants in response to our sin. But as we stated before, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So there will never be a time where God responds to our sin in a way that is inconsistent with his character. John reminds us that God is both faithful and just. And so God will be faithful and just in his response to your sin. And because God is faithful, you can be sure that if you are a child of God, if you confess your sin, that he will always hear you, he will always forgive you, he will always love you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never cease to be faithful. God is faithful. That's just who he is. He isn't moody or conditional like you and I. He is faithful even when you and I are not. And not only is God faithful, he is also just. You see, God isn't called just just because he's, because he's easygoing about sin, but because he hates sin and he will always punish sin. In fact, God's hatred for sin was so deep that he, it led him to the ultimate punishment, which was to kill his son on the cross. God isn't easygoing about sin. He demands justice. And even though he had done no wrong, it was God's will to crush Jesus and to cause him to suffer because of your sins and mine. And because of what Jesus did, our sins have been paid for and we will never stand the chance of being punished for it again. For the believer, God's faithfulness and justice should not lead us to feel condemned, but rather feel comforted and convicted and led to, re to repentance. The third truth that we need to remember, the third thing that we need to cling on to when we are exposed of our sin is found in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. This is what John says. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's awesome to consider that Jesus not only came into this world and suffered death on the cross for our sin, but that he continually stands before the Father pleading our case on our behalf. But you see, Jesus, the advocate, is different than the lawyers that we're used to seeing on Law and Order or on CSI. Jesus is different. And here's two ways in which he's different. First, Jesus is righteous. Jesus isn't corrupt. He is just. And so when he is working, pleading our case before the Father, he isn't just working towards his own best interests. Rather, he cares deeply about ours. And he isn't working to find loopholes in the law so that we would be acquitted of any wrongdoing. Instead, he's standing before the Father as one who has fulfilled the law, and he will not compromise justice for mercy. And Jesus is different in a second way. Jesus is different because he is our propitiation. You see, an earthly lawyer pleads his case before the Father based on his client's merit, right? So he stands before a judge and says something like, you know what, my client really isn't as bad as you're making him out to be, 
or he hasn't done the things that you are convicting him of. Rather, an earthly, an earthly lawyer tries to plead his case, trying to explain to the people in the courtroom, to the jury, why his client isn't so bad. But Jesus' case isn't built on our merit, rather it is built on his. He, in fact, stands before the Father and says, Binu is just as bad as you have declared him to be. He is that sinner. He is the one that falls and fails over and over again. But I am taking his punishment upon myself. I am the propitiation for his sins. And so when we sin, we don't have a Jesus who stands before the Father accusing us and pointing his fingers at us. Instead, we have a Jesus who is pleading our case, not based on what we have done or who, or who we are, but based on what he has done and who he is. Jesus is our advocate. Seven Mile Road, God is light and in him there is no darkness. And when we encounter God, we are exposed to the sins that are in our life. And we can respond to the realization of those sins in many ways. We can claim to be a Christian but continually walk in habitual sin. Or we can choose to live with a lack of honesty about our sin. Or we can even choose to not believe what God has said about our sin and to continue living in it. But John is saying that those responses will always fail and that our only hope is Jesus. So that when we are exposed to the sins in our lives, we're not called to run from God, but rather walk in the light so that the blood of Jesus would continually cleanse us from all sin. So that when we are exposed to sin, that we need to remember that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, that he will always forgive us, and that he will never leave us. That when we are exposed to sin, we need to remember the advocate that we have in Jesus, who stands before the Father pleading our case, not based on what we have done, but based on what he has done and who he is. I'm praying for us this morning that the exposure to our sin may lead us to have no other hope but to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Father, we are sitting here this morning fully aware of the fact that we have been exposed many times in many ways before, that our sins have come to the surface, that we have been able to see things that were not really there on the outward, but that you have exposed what's going on within our heart. And we confess the fact that we have responded to those sins in our own ways, that we have responded to those sins with more of us. We have responded to those sins by denying those things that you have exposed us to. We have responded those, to those sins that you have exposed us of by trying to be good people by the things that we do. And you are reminding us that all those things fail, that the only hope that we have the only hope that we can cling on to when we are exposed of sin is to remember the person and work of Jesus. That instead of running from God, that we need to turn to you and walk in the light and experience deeper fellowship with you. That instead of feeling condemned, that we need to remember your faithfulness and your justice 
that instead of turning away from you and turning to ourselves, that we need to turn to our advocate, Jesus Christ, who pleads our case before you, our Father, not based on what we have done, but based on what he has done and who he is. I'm praying that we as Seven Mile Road would be a church that is marked by our repentance, that we would turn from our sin and turn towards you because you have provided all for us in Christ Jesus. Please hear our prayer. Please cause repentance. Cause us to be transformed from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.